Welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight up to today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lassley. Today we are looking at some of those earliest days. We're going all the way back to World War I to talk about a topic that I think has been a little underrepresented in air power history. We're going to explore the Battle of Gallipoli. And we are joined today by Sterling Michael Pavlik. He is a professor of air power history at the Air Command and Staff College at Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. He's the author of four previous books and a number of articles on technology, air power, space, in cyber warfare, and he's here today to talk about air power over Gallipoli, 1915 and 1916. Mike, how you doing? Thanks for coming here. I'm really good. Thank you very much for asking. Well, let's dive in here. So World War One. for those that aren't already familiar with this and this particular battle, give us a little overview real quick. What is the Battle of Gallipoli? What's going on? Why is this important? Sure. So everybody knows the Western Front. Most of the history of the First World War, of course, is Western Front and, and the British and the French versus the Germans. And then the Americans show up and save the day, right? That's the, that's the master narrative of, of World War One. I. I had an advisor and advisor at University of Calgary, Tim Travers, who was working on a Gallipoli book. And the way it plays out is that the Ottoman Turks joined the war in October 1914, so a little bit later than, than, than it gets going on the Western Front. And the Ottomans are down, they, they straddle, the city of Istanbul straddles the Bosphorus, which controls the waterway to the Black Sea. And at the end of the other end of it, the Bosphorus is one end at the top with the, with the Black Sea. The other end is a peninsula called the Gallipoli Peninsula that controls the waterway called the Dardanelles. One of Big Churchill's big ideas in, in, in Britain, he's the, he's the first Lord of the Admiralty at this point, and his idea is he wants to get the Turks out of the war because they're one of the central powers, so he can open the waterways between the Mediterranean and the Black Sea, so the Russians can ferry in supplies into Sevastopol when the Crimea used to be there. So the idea is to open up the Black Sea by kicking the Turks out of the war. And so this plan emerges to have a fight over the Dardanelles waterway to begin with that eventually turns into a land invasion of the, of the Gallipoli Peninsula, including the Anzacs, the Australian and New Zealand Corps. And it's become famous for the debacle of the of the naval attacks and then the mastery, so to speak, of the land invasions and and, and how gallant and, and fantastic and, and brave the Australian soldiers were that got slaughtered as portrayed uh, in the movie by Mel Gibson, Gallipoli. And then that's about it. When I was a master's student, so this project's been in the works for a hundred years, it seems, Tim Travers had a big, huge box of documents and he was my he was my advisor there at Calgary. And he said, hey, look through this. I want you to learn how to use primary documents to all of his students. And I was just one of them. Uh, he says, I'm working on this Gallipoli book. If you find anything interesting in here, you can work on your term papers for my class based in this primary document stuff. And I found some really good documents on the air war that nobody, literally nobody had ever written about. And I was like, hey, I'm an air power historian. I really want to write on this. And that was the genesis of the project. So the number of aircraft here seems pretty small. You know, I think when we look at a, a more developed air power, again, on the Western Front, particularly later in the war, you know, let's say post 1916, 
we tend to think of dozens or even hundreds of biplanes and triplanes duking it out for control of the air. But really, we're talking about a small number of aircraft here. What types of aircraft are involved? How many of them are there? And what are they doing? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, Brian, because everybody looks at this and they're like, this is so insignificant. This is the reason nobody's ever written about it before. And it's like, yeah, okay, I'll concede that point. So the British get there first and they have what are called seaplane tenders. The HMS Ark Royal is a seaplane tender. And this is before aircraft carriers. It's It's a ship that carries float planes and it has cranes on it and it picks the planes up off the ship deck and it puts them on the water and then they go fly around and they come back and then it picks them back up and puts them back in the ship for, for maintenance and repair and things like that. And the Ark Royal has six float planes, Admiralty short type 135s, and a, they have two different types of float planes on, on the Ark Royal itself. And then they've got six Sopwith tabloids in the hold that are land planes that are going to have to wait to till the a base is constructed so they can use them on land. So basically, the British show up with six airplanes, and that's the entire British air contingent. And across the, on the other side, the Germans, it's, this, is the, and this is the fascinating documents I found in Germany. The Germans send a, an advisor, a group of advisors, and everybody knows Lehman von Sanders and, and what he's doing for the ground war. But there's this German captain in the German army who's an air service representative. And, and on the document of the people that went, this captain is one above the veterinarian that's taking care of the horses. So it's just a hilarious. 41 officers are going to Turkey, and this is our least favorite except for the veterinarian, apparently. But Major Eric Cerno shows up. And the Ottomans commission him into the Ottoman army and give him the fez with the, the wings on it. And, and he commissioned as a major. And so, you know, both, you know, I, I teach at ACSE and, and my majors come in and I go, okay, well, what if you went to advise another country and then they commissioned you into their military? So there's some very interesting and, and great stories, anecdotes from this campaign. But the Germans, this major Eric Cerno will, will advise the Turks and they've got some money and they've got a couple of locations they're thinking about. And they have had airplanes before, but they've lost all of them since the Balkan Wars. So they have zero. And this major is instructed and and given the authority to literally build an entire air force. And over the course of the campaign, what you see in there, he basically sets up two different types of air forces, if you will. One of them is the land planes, and he's going to be more in charge of that one. And then he puts a buddy of his down at Chinakali, and he puts him in charge of the seaplanes that the Germans get and the float planes that fly from from the water base down at Chinakali. And so the Germans in the advising the Turks will build up a little bit of an air force as well. But it's a great question because we're literally talking about a couple of dozen on either side. After the initial naval attacks, the British are like, yeah, this is important enough. Let's send another, let's send a squadron. And Charles Rumney Sampson, who's a RNAS, Royal Naval Air Service, before it was consolidated into the RAF in 1918. So he's a lieutenant commander. He's in charge of 18 airplanes, six different types with eight different engines. Okay, so just the logistics of this campaign are amazing and and the problems that he will face with the pilot shortage and with not enough airplanes ever and bombs and guns and fuel and lubricants and parts and like all the problems that he runs into. And then of course the weather. This is not a really hospitable place to be flying biplanes that are made out of wooden fabric. But he's got about 20 airplanes and then the French are going to show up with a squadron later on. But the we're talking 50 airplanes total among both belligerents and all kinds of different types. And one of the questions that you had posed to me before we sat down was 
you know, were these the cutting edge? And they're, they're absolutely not. It's all the cast-offs from the Western Front that can no longer be used at the Western Front, but they're like, hey, send them to Gallipoli. They're not, they don't mind. They just want new airplanes. And so it's a lot of the stuff that's already obsolete and obsolescent on the Western Front that, that ends up in the Mediterranean Air War. What was the old commercial for cereal? Give it to Mikey. Mikey will get it. Mikey will eat anything. It kind of reminds me of that, you know, S- send it to Gallipoli. Gallipoli will fly anything. <laughs> well, absolutely. There's this, there's a funny story where a shipment of airplanes shows up at six airplanes that are so obsolete that Charles Rumney Sampson says, "Leave them in the box, throw them in the water, and and let them sink to the bottom, and just tell them we never they never arrived, and you know maybe they'll send them some send us something new that we can use." But the logistics <laughs> chain is in, in in and of itself an, an incredibly interesting story. Yeah, I wonder if you could unpack some of the technology stuff a little bit more. Like, what are some of the limitations that some of these planes have? What roles? Are they performing really? Is it the same kind of roles that we see aircraft doing today? And how are they able to do it or not do it in this particularly rough environment? Yeah, so Mike, that's a great segue because the environment is absolutely atrocious. It's either too hot in the summer or too cold as they get into the winter months. The campaign lasts from February 1915 to January, the first literally two weeks of January 1916. And they're going to see all kinds of weather. And then, of course, you have the salt air off the Aegean there. You have just the sun beating down, the dust and the of course, the insects and the disease and you know, dysentery and all the things that go with, you know, trying to live in a desert-ish kind of Mediterranean climate on these little tiny islands at the, at the mouth of the Dardanelles. So the conditions are incredibly harsh. In the official history, the British official history, H.A. Jones writes, never have land planes had to fly so much over water and never have water planes ever had to fly so much over land. They're also having to traverse across the environmental conditions that they don't have on the Western Front because when airplanes get shot down or run out of fuel or their engine conks out in the Western Front, they can find a nice patch of grass to land. And in the Dardanelles and Gallipoli, they're flying over water and to get back to bases. They actually do try to set up a base. The British try to set up a base on the Hellas beaches, but the conditions are horrible and they're flying incredibly primitive machines for what we would think of as as airplanes today. The maintenance schedules themselves and, and the maintainers and the things that they're able to do to keep these airplanes flying is absolutely incredible. And so you have in the in the heat of the summer, the records showed that the laminate on the propellers would come unglued and the propellers would simply fly apart while they were flying. It's incredibly dangerous. The dope that covers the wings would drip because it was so hot. And then, of course, the squalls and the, the like we just had a hurricane here in Alabama, the gales and the winds that blow in across the Mediterranean in the autumn time. And so just the environment itself would conspire against them. At one point, the Germans lose three airplanes in one hangar because of a windstorm. And it basically gives the British air superiority because of one storm. And the environment is, is incredibly difficult. Then the airplanes themselves are very tempestuous and, and very fragile. The compression on these early engines, and I'm, I'm a big admirer of your museum, Mike, that you've got all these engines just up on display. That's my favorite part is the engine. But in the heat, they'll lose compression. And as they lose compression, they lose power. And so that they can't fly as fast or as high. And their environmental conditions with these highly advanced technological machines at the time, of course, we look back on them and go, oh, you know, biplanes, but whatever. And they're having issues with the parts wearing out and trying to maintain the airplanes. And, and so the operational rates that they do achieve are, are, are fairly fantastic in spite of the conditions that they face. But the idea of what, so what do they try? Well, the biggest role of airplanes in the First World War on the Western Front even is observation. And they begin with observation and they go and they map the peninsula and they're looking for Turks and where the Turks are and, and where they're hiding out and where their fortresses 
are or where their machine gun nests are, where their artillery is. And the Navy will then, the Royal Navy will then try to reduce the fortifications and where the Turks are with naval artillery. And so the second mission that, that emerges is spotting for the, the Navy and the naval artillery. Problem is there's no radios. And so how do you communicate back to the Navy that they're they're actually hitting their targets? And so it's kind of a before and after kind of thing where they have to look for a target, go back and tell the Navy where it is, then go back up and bomb damage assessment, what we call BDA today, and tell them afterwards whether they were successful or not, or you know keep going. They finally get a radio, and it's a really heavy radio, so you can only have a pilot. You can't. You have to take an observer out of the early float planes from the Ark Royal, and the pilot will try to tap Morse code on his knee while the airplane, while he's flying the airplane, spotting for naval artillery on Turkish positions as he's flying over them. It's just it's just a fascinating story of, of how they actually are trying to do the communications as well as the the main role of uh, of observation, what we call today ISR, Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance. And that's where it starts. There's another little tangent that I have to go to, which is the British show up with these two ships called kite balloon ships. And they're ships that have tethered balloons on them. And they raise them up about 1,500 feet and they have a telephone cable wrapped around the winch cord so they have better communications. But it's looking at Gallipoli, the peninsula, from an oblique angle. And so the angle is bad. The airplanes can see straight down and see better, especially in the rev ravines and the mountainous areas because Gallipoli has lots of mountains and these sort of dark spots, uh, uh, hidden spots with the terrain. So the airplanes can see better, but the balloon ships can communicate better. And there's this back and forth of how to maximize naval artillery. And of course, then naval artillery is horizontal rather than vertical dr drop. So you, you can blow things sort of away. You can't blow them up from hitting them on top, which the Germans found out was a whole lot easier if you have howitzers. But there's a lot of technological components that work into this. The aircraft and the, the pilots try to make the airplanes significant and tactical and operational. But what they're going to find is that even all these things that they try, there are going to be difficulties with trying to maximize the use of the airplanes. So what they end up doing is the British, especially as they grab a German camera and they start taking pictures and they'll photograph the entire peninsula many times over, just trying to provide situa situational awareness to the, to the Navy. And then eventually when we get to the actual landings, the where the landing sites are and where they're going to be maximized the best and all these kind of things. That said, there's some fairly innovative guys in the air. And the Germans, especially in the Ottomans, will be fighting on the defensive because they're not going to really take the war to the to the Royal Navy that's out in the water or the Allied air bases. They're sort of just going to hang back and, and, and observe what the Navy's doing, but but try to shoot down the Allied airplanes. And so eventually they'll get some E-1 Fokker Eindeckers and with a, with some machine guns right at the very, very end of the campaign, literally the final weeks. But the Allied pilots are, it's a fascinating story because the, the British and the French will basically try everything they can. They'll try a little bit of bombing with 20 pound bombs and later 50 pound bombs and they get up to a 200 pound bomb and they've got it strapped on and they fire up the engine as fast as they can go and they take as much space as they need and they go try to bomb things. It's the first instance of a torpedo launched from an airplane in, in the Gallipoli Peninsula. And so there's a couple of times where a, a pilot, very audacious and experimental and fairly bold pilot, takes a 1,400-pound torpedo and slings it on the bottom of his float plane and then goes after a Turkish ship. And it's, it's funny because at one point is he starts losing compression so he can't maintain flight. And so he lands on his floats and he's just sort of flying, taxing around on the water. And everybody ignores him because they think it's one of the German airplanes. And he shoots his torpedo 
torpedo and he hits a Turkish ship and he, because he's lost the weight, he can take off and he flies back to the fleet. And he's like, oh, I just sank a ship, but I was sort of taxiing and pointed in the right de- direction. It, it, so, I mean, just some great stories. So there's like tactical, operational and strategic bombing. There's a little bit of air superiority battle with planes versus planes. There's the torpedoes, there's anti-submarine, there's anti-mine spotting for mines. They kind of try a little bit of everything. By the end of the book and by the end of the campaign, I began to realize that none of these lessons really filter back to the RFC, the Royal Flying Corps that's on the Western Front, or for the French, the Army de la Air that's flying on the Western Front. First off, it's not Royal Flying Corps at, at Gallipoli, it's RNAS, Royal Naval Air Service. And Churchill's able to send the Royal Naval Air Service because Haig and Kitchener are like, you can't take any of our airplanes. So it's Navy pilots rather than Army pilots. And so there's going to be a miscommunication, lack of communications, lack of lessons learned from the British pilots at Gallipoli to the British pilots back at the Western Front. The same thing happens with the French and the Germans are kind of left out on their own with the Turks and none of these lessons filter back to the, the people that are that should have been learning the lessons. Of course, there's a big war going on. So I mean, you can't blame them too much. But the idea is that you there's all these fantastic stories of things that were tried at least once in Gallipoli. And the lessons are sort of lost to history. I mean, that was a big motivating factor as well for me to sit down and, and crunch this out. I want to circle back to something you said earlier and something that, that's all overlooked in the study of air power. And that is the fact that geography matters. When you go back and you look at Billy Mitchell and some of the air power theorists, often what they say is we can fly over and not go through and we can fly over and, and attack our targets. And it really doesn't matter because we operate in this entire other dimension this entire other domain, and what goes on on the ground doesn't really affect us. But that's not entirely true. And that depending on where you're flying, and this is World War One, World War Two, Desert Storm, modern day incarnations of air power, the geography on the ground does matter. So tell us a little bit about how the geography matters here during Gallipoli. Yeah, the geography is absolutely essential in this campaign. If you've seen the pictures of Gallipoli and, and most people that have read the books and things and looked at the campaign, begin to understand that the geography is incredibly important for the defensive, especially. Now, the third dimension and the, the air domain is, is important. And this is what the book is about, but it's really difficult to try to capture the land once that decision is made. So let, let me wind the, the story back a little bit. The British begin with the idea of let's just force the Dardanelles and we'll use the ships and we'll sail up the Dardanelles. We'll scare the Turks off. We'll, we'll, shoot, we'll throw some shells in it into Istanbul, Constantinople. And they say, we'll, we'll, we'll shell Istanbul for a little bit and they'll quit because, you know, they're Turks and they're soft. And I went back to the records in the archives and there's a French air attache in Istanbul before the war. And he basically writes this note out that says the same thing. Hey, if we could bomb these guys, they're totally soft and weak. They'll rise up, they'll throw, they'll throw off the salt and we can beat them with air power. And that was an interesting super interesting document to find that apparently nobody read when he got back to France. The French are kicked out right at the beginning of the war because they're on taunt rather than central powers, of course. The British were thinking the same thing. The Americans are thinking the same thing. Who's the ambassador to Turkey? Morgenthau, I think. He writes a little bit about this and what the, and he had cocktail parties with everybody but the Germans kind of thing. And, and so these ideas are floating around about, well, we think the Turks are soft. I mean, even Winston Churchill, they're the soft underbelly of Europe, the sick man of Europe. These statements come out that in 
indicate that the Europeans, the white Europeans, think that the Turks are nothing that are going to be important. And Churchill is the first lord who will come up with this idea of, I'll just drive through the Dardanelles and blow up a couple of their stuff and they'll just quit. Well, there, there's a couple of naval attacks, naval-only attacks, and the airplanes are there flying around trying to do their best, spotting mines, looking for ships, looking for targets. And that's that's where my story begins. But the naval attacks fail miserably. If you've looked at the first naval attacks at the Dardanelles, there's a line of mines that the Allies don't spot. And it's a combined British and French attack. At a certain point, the defenses turn out to be a whole lot stiffer than the British and the French were, were thinking they were going to be. And so the Bouvet, which is a French battleship, turns around to go out because it's taken a lot of damage, hits a mine, sinks, 600, 600 sailors die, like in 15 minutes. And then four battleships will be lost at the naval attack. And that's a quarter of the fleet that's in theater. And Churchill goes, oh, that's not good. Uh, what are those Australians doing? They're training down in Egypt. Let's use them. We got to use them for something. And so they send a British infantry division and a, the Australians and New Zealanders, the Anzacs, to invade the peninsula. And the whole strategic concept is to gain the high ground and then look down on the targets that were shooting the Navy and shoot at the targets that were shooting at the Navy a whole lot better, blow up those targets, and then go blow up Istanbul. But there's a lack of communication between the Navy High Command, the admirals, the Army High Command, the, the generals, of what the strategic purpose of the invasion is. And so the Anzacs come wading ashore, and they face this enormous hill. That it's kind of a cliff. It's super steep. They can get up it, and they really try to, but it's called the Sphinx. And I have this great picture in my study of the Sphinx and the Anzacs looking up at it. And it's a big rock formation that looks like a sphinx. From that, you begin to see that the geography is absolutely vital to this whole campaign. You have a miscommunication at the strategic level of what needs to take place, and then just horrible terrain that the, the soldiers are trying to conquer. And so Gallipoli Peninsula itself, there's a ridge of, there are two ridges of mountains that run down the length of it. And then there's stuff in between like ravines and there's deep pockets and there's hills that hide stuff. And so with the horizontal view, like the Navy has, they can't see the targets. The army, once they get to the ground, it's really hard to traverse. And then of course the orchards with, there's lots of dates and olives. As we read Victor Davis Hanson, which I'm sure all of us did, we all know how hard it is to destroy an olive grove. And then in the ravines, they have these big bushes that are really thorny. And so at one point, the British try to burn a bunch of it, and it creates more smoke, and the Turks hide, and then they shoot the British. And yeah, so it's a combination of a number of things. It's their home turf, which is you know home field advantage kind of thing. The geography is daunting and really difficult to be able to see where the defenses are. And then the maps are horrible, and the pictures are decent, but it's primitive in aerial photography. And it's hard to overcome the geographical problems, but it I think, and I do argue, that it was more important to overcome the, the strategic communications problems where the army simply isn't talking to the Navy and vice versa. And then you get, and this is a fascinating part of it that I that I found, and I talked to, talk to my students about it. The idea is the air component for the British is a Navy lieutenant commander, so an 05. The French is an 03 captain. The German is an 03, 04, depending on how you look at his rank. And they're trying to convince admirals and generals that their component is important to the strategic outcome of the battle. And so you have some incredibly innovative young and very low ranking, medium ranking, but mid-career officers that know their trade and know their equipment and know their limitations. And they're trying to do it, use it the best they can. But 
Charles Romney Sampson is one of the central figures in my book because he's the one I could find the most material on. I mean, frankly, I'll, I'll be honest about it. He, and, and then he wrote an autobiography, which really helped me, you know, parse, you know, fill in the blanks. But the idea is he's a commander in the Navy and he's not able to convey to the leadership the strategic importance of what he can do for them. And there are a number of instances where it's like the Suvla offensive uh, in August, the British are running across this dry salt lake and there's no Turkish op- opposition and the airplanes fly around and Charles Romney Sampson looks out the uh, over the side of his airplane and he goes, hey, there's no Turks there. Tell those guys to get going as fast as they can. Then he lands and he radios the general that's in charge of the attack and he goes, there's nobody in front of you. Go, 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 go. And the hills are there, but they don't advance nearly as fast as they could and they lose a strategic opportunity. And so even where air power could have played a greater role, there's a miscommunication or a lack of trust between the, these 07s and above, brigadiers and above, and rear admirals and above, and these lowly, I'll use that in air quotes, commanders and and captains and, and majors. That was a fascinating part to me. And then I'll go in course, both of you know that I, I teach majors and lieutenant colonels. And I'm like, look, you can have a strategic difference. You just have to make sure that people are listening to you and you make a good point. You can you can write two page paper really well. This is uh, fantastic. I'm really struck by how you mentioned these people being innovative and just how crazy some of these innovations really are. We're talking about a time where the invention of aircraft is like barely more than 10 years old. And they're experimenting with all these different things like putting radios up there, different kinds of weapons, different types of attacks, you know, tactical, operational, strategic level types of thinking in different ways and applying all these things. What struck me about your book is it's almost like a microcosm of what we think of as air power doing today. It's doing all of those things in Gallipoli. And I guess the question I'm left with is, is it successful? Like, does it work? Is air power contributing in a maybe not decisive, but in a key way? Or what is kind of the big takeaway from everybody else? You mentioned a lot of lessons don't get brought back, but for the people that were there, what do you think those key lessons were? Yeah, and that's that's the biggest connection I try to make with my students. They're Air Force officers, the majority of them. And I try to make those connections. How can you be effective? And what's your definition of effective? The airplanes and the aircraft and the commanders at Gallipoli are effective at the tactical level. There's no question about that. They're innovative. They do a lot of things that are super interesting. They have a lot of fantastic anecdotes. They really challenge the ideas of what the technology can do and what it can be used for. And I, I really like that. We all like the, the little anecdotes and the stories and, the, and the, the heroism and the, the bravery and the daredevilry and all these kinds of things. But what they're going to find out, and, and, and they come to this realization by the end of the campaign, is the air component really isn't that important. They're not communicating their importance to the, the higher command. And the higher command is simply not listening to them. That was one of the biggest reasons why in every single book about Gallipoli, it doesn't even mention the air component because it simply doesn't play that big of a role whatsoever. I do talk about how it does have some effects, but most of the really important stuff that they could have been able to achieve is simply ignored by the people that won't maximize the technology and and the ability of the third domain. So you get generals and you get admirals who dismiss the technology because they don't understand the technology. And they will, it, like you said, it's it's 10 years into the airplanes and you get Navy admirals that are like, I know what Navy ships can do. And so I'm going to stick with that. And then get Army generals and the, especially the British who do the bulk of the land forces at, at Gallipoli. Of course, the Turks and the, and the Germans are on the defense, but the British are on the attack and the British generals are old white dudes and they, they don't take this technology seriously. And they're like cavalry and artillery and infantry and we'll win this because they're just Turks and they don't maximize the technology and the, the, the effects that the third dimension can give them. 
And hey, it's a meat grinder. I mean, it turns into trench warfare just like the Western Front. And eventually, I don't want to spoil it for you, but the British do leave and they don't have a victory there. But air power potentially could have played a bigger role had it been taken more seriously by either the Admiralty in Britain or in the theater. At one point, Charles Sampson, and he gets the French to, to help him out with a bombing run, and they go after a single railway bridge that is what he thinks is his focal point of the transportation network to get to Gallipoli. And if they can sever this bridge, then it can cut off all the supplies and then the, the British might do better. And so they try it a couple of times and it's unsuccessful because of inaccuracy and because they don't have the equipment and they they have barely the range and there's some fantastic stories that emerge from it. But the lieutenant commanders and, and Charles Sampson are thinking strategically and thinking about how he can help the ground forces most effectively with his airplanes. And he'll go from tactical to operational to strategic and back and forth, but he just can't seem to find the way to communicate to the leadership how this works into their scheme of maneuver. And I think that's one of the tragedies of this story. I can't say you know, that it's playing Monday morning quarterback, right? And as historians, we do like to speculate when we're talking with people, but we don't really write it because we, you know, we don't want to make it up as we go. But I don't think that air power could have changed the course of the Gallipoli campaign. I really don't. They may have been able to, the British may have been able to exploit some of the advantages, but the Turks put up an incredibly staunch defense and the Germans supplied weapons and the Germans supplied leadership Lehman von Sanders, do a really good job at defense. The strategic leadership of the allies, the British and the French especially, and the disharmony between the army and the navy means that there's no strategic guidance of what needs to be done. And the campaign is going to fall apart because there's they just ha don't have strategic coordination, let alone coordination between the British and the French. And then you add in this super fascinating but fairly unimportant air power component, and that's the part that I wrote about. I mean, there have been thousands and thousands of books written about Gallipoli. I just said, I want to write the airplane part because nobody's ever written it before. So I don't try to rewrite the entire campaign. I'm just writing it from one specific perspective. And there's just, there's a lot of problems. I don't think that air power failed at all. I think they did some fantastic work. I think they could have been used a whole lot better, but I don't think the strategic failures on the air power either. I think the strategic failures at the high command level, just a, a miscommunication, a misunderstanding of, of what needed to happen in the first place. This seems like a pretty difficult topic to do research for in terms of finding sources and all this kind of thing. And you mentioned that you had found some sources in your grad student work that you were able to use. Tell us a little bit about your research process, what types of sources you're finding, what the challenges were, especially dealing with, I'm assuming there's some sort of language barrier issues happening as well. So uh, yeah. can you expand on that? Yeah. So I, the anecdote I like to tell, and it's the one in the introduction, Tim Travers was my advisor at University of Calgary. And I told you about the box of documents that he had. And uh, he was doing a graduate level course on the Gallipoli book that he was writing at the time. And it's Tim Travers, Gallipoli 1950. But he had these big boxes of documents and he goes, look through it and you could start working with primary document research. And I was like, hey, that's a good idea. Now this is like 97, 98, University of Calgary for my master's. And I wrote this paper. He said, it's a 35 page research paper for the end of this class. And I handed him a 65 page paper because I really got into it. And he goes, hey, you should either cut this down and make it a really good article or you should expand it out and make it a really good book, A minus. And so that's, that was in the introduction. It, it, I thought that was, it's always a cute story. And so I shelved it because both, you know, that I did my first book on the German jets and that was my dissertation. And so second world war air power, and it's the technology question again, uh, and problems with high command. And, and, and that one is a lot of fun. And then of course I went off the rails with a couple other things. And then I came back to this one, but this was a passion project. This was one that I always wanted to get back to because it was always really fun. All of us have that one that's like, oh, that, that was, I really want to get back to that one. 
And so Jeff Gray, our recently passed uh, president of SMH, had me come down a couple of years ago to Australia, and I was doing some stuff for him and, and Australia Defense Force Academy. And he says, I'll give you an extra week in the archives if you need it. And I said, yes, please. And so I went to the Australian archives down in Canberra, and I found a couple of things, and it relit the flame. And then I went, oh, this is going to be good if I can get some really good stuff. Then I was in Paris with some students and, and they went home early and I went to Vincennes for a couple of days. Then I found some stuff and I was like, oh, this is going to be really good. And then I went back to, I got a, a research grant and I went to Britain a couple of times and, and I got some more stuff on Samson and I got some more stuff on Three Wing and I got some more stuff on HMS Arc Royal. And it was a process over quite literally since 1997 of collecting documents. And then it was like, oh, I got to get to Turkey. I got to tell the Turkey story and then by extension, the German story. So I got a chance to go to Germany for two weeks and this was, uh, it was three years ago now. And I had gone to Turkey and I presented this paper at, at SMH. You guys might've seen that one. Some of the Turks in the audience were like, Hey, we're having this conference for the hundred year anniversary of Gallipoli. And this was 2015, obviously. Why didn't you come present your paper? And of course, Adam Kane, and this is a whole nother story, but Adam Kane was that Naval Institute press. And I gave him a paragraph and he goes, Oh yeah, we'll totally print that. But I got to go to Ankara and I can't read Arabic script and I can't read modern Turkish. So I got some graduate students there and contacts and I got some of them to look up some stuff. I gave them some keywords and I gave them some, some things to look for and then send me the documents documents and the originals and the translations. And I paid paid them to do the research for me as we do, because I didn't have the language skills like you asked, but they've sent me some fantastic images and maps and really cool stuff in the translations. And it was totally worth every, every cent I paid them for, for research. Then a lot of the Turkish stuff was in the German archives, translated into German, thankfully, so that I could read that. And then Eric Sarno's stuff and Lehman von Sanders stuff and the German foreign ministry stuff in, in either Berlin or down in Freiburg. So basically, I kind of mined all of the archives that I could find and, and all the documents that I could find. And as you know, there's not a lot in Germany from the First World War because, well, the Second World War, we kind of bombed everything. The British, of course, kept meticulous records. So, I mean, there was really good stuff in, in PRO and well, it's National Archives now and uh, IWM downtown. And their photo archives are fantastic, super expensive, but really fantastic. So I got most of my pictures from uh, you at Smithsonian because. I, I could get them for free, use them for free. But I like to think that I'd kind of exhausted all the archives and found pretty much as much as I could. And I had some help with my, my Turkish documents, of course. And, and there's some been a couple of recent books that came out in Turkish about Gallipoli for the 100-year anniversary. And I tried to maximize that. The Turks provide the land and a couple of the mechanics that they send to Germany to learn how to be mechanics and a couple of the observers. And by the very, very end of it, a couple of the pilots who will lead to, who become important in in the post-Gallipoli Ottoman Air Force. But at the time, there's not a whole lot of Ottoman Turkish stuff to begin with. It was mostly German records for the quote-unquote bad guy. But I did try to exhaust the, the resources. Fortunately, like I said earlier, there's like 20 airplanes on the Allied side and maybe 10 on the German side. So you can kind of keep track of tail numbers and, and people and coming and going. And it's only nine months. And so I only have a little bit of time, but I like to think I, I, I wrote a fairly comprehensive uh, account of the, the air campaign. And I think you did too. It's a great book. I will be the first to admit that uh, when I saw it was coming out, I myself being an air power historian went air power over Gallipoli. There was <laughs> air power over Gallipoli. Uh, so it was, it was eye-opening. It was a fascinating book uh, and you should absolutely be commended for it. Well, thank you very much. But I'm not surprised you said that because literally everybody says that. There were airplanes at Gallipoli? 
So now I, I hope I can add to that little bit of the slice of the pie. Yeah, I think it adds a lot. It's a good kind of untold chapter in the history of air power that I think deserves an extra look. And your book really does that. The book is Air Power Over Gallipoli, 1915 to 1916 by Sterling Michael Pavlik from Naval Institute Press. Mike, where else can we find you? Are you active online anywhere that we can look you up? Twitter, at History Mike. I'm a lurker rather than a prolific poster, but uh, I do sort of throw out quips every once in a while. I have a website I haven't maintained for a couple of months, and so I probably should do that. Uh, HistoryMike.com. Brian, where are you at online? So you can find me at BrianLastly.com. And once again, uh, in my newly reinstated and returned Twitter account, at Brian Lastly, uh, you can find me there as well. Mike, how about yourself? I'm on Twitter at Hankenstein. That's spelled with a T-I-E-N. And hey, I'm on Insta now. I don't know if y'all are into that thing that the youth like, but I'm on Instagram at HankensMW. All of us are online at BalloonsToDrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at DigitalFishMedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please visit balloonstodrones.com slash contact. If you'd like to submit an article for publication on the site, please go to balloonstodrones.com slash submissions. And I should announce that we are starting a new Gulf War series to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the 1991 Persian Gulf War. Thank you to everyone, and we will see you next time.